Hello, Words Matter listeners. To celebrate the relaunch of the show, we are offering membership in the DSR network for just $5 a month or a bargain at $50 per year. Membership gets you access to bonus content, ad-free listening, not just on Words Matter, but other great shows like Deep State Radio, which I'm also on from time to time, the DSR Daily Brief, Next in Foreign Policy, and more. To take advantage of this offer, all you have to do is go to the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. That's the dsrnetwork.com backslash buy. Thank you and hope to see you on our member site. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. And it gives Democrats more hope than they've had in a very long time. And Dr. Kavita Patel. It's not something that started with Trump. It's not something that's going to start and stop with Leonard Leo and the billionaires. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to cover a multitude of topics that start with our primaries that uh, were of consequence. I will say there have been many primaries that I think Norm and I are tracking, but uh, we've just had a recent slate of them. We'll also talk about the dark money that has always been a, a key part of this disenchantment of like political norms. I would say, Norm, we can discuss that, but has really been ramped up and put on steroids lately by some characters such as Leonard Leo. On with our show. We've got, I think, a pretty busy agenda here. I've got my own slate of kind of primary results or key races that I have been watching for. How about if we start with you and talk through some, well, number one, were there any surprises to your kind of comment uh, that we've made in past podcasts around things that we did not expect or things that we did expect? And then in terms of uh, where we can talk through some of the, I personally was actually not surprised, but I thought it was actually interesting to look at some of the Democratic races. Carolyn Maloney's upset to name one of several. And and then what I would say is a slate of influx of MAGAites that we had predicted. But to be honest with you, Norm, last night kind of put it to reality that what we have been worried about is going to be true, no matter how the Senate and House races final shakeup occur in November, that we are going to have more MAGA, not less. I guess that's my take. But tell me, surprises, Norm, uh, reactions, thoughts? So if there's one surprise that really resonates in this case, It's a special election to fill out the remainder of a term in New York's 19th congressional district. Now, this is a district that went narrowly for Biden, but has generally been more favorable towards Republicans. And the Republican candidate for this special election, while everybody expected it would be relatively close, was generally considered to be a favorite, Molinaro. But the Democrat, Pat Ryan, won and won by four points, outperforming Biden, outperforming other candidates from that district. It'll be a different district after the redistricting takes place for November, but it was important for a couple of reasons. First, it showed that this idea that we were in the midst of a red wave does not appear in any way to be accurate. And it gives Democrats more hope than they've had in a very long time 
that they could actually be competitive in the House and maybe keep a majority. That's still an uphill climb. And frankly, Kavita, the main reason at this point that it is an uphill climb is that there are several states, Ohio prominent among them, where lawless behavior by legislators and others, a refusal to abide by court orders in terms of redrawing district lines, has meant that they're going to be using old lines that give more advantage to Republicans, probably seven or eight seats that Democrats might have had otherwise. New York, because they couldn't come up with an effective map, had a special master who drew a map that really sticks it to Democrats as well. And that we can get to the incumbents being thrown together. As you mentioned, Carolyn Maloney losing her seat after 30 years to Jerry Nadler. But what was striking about this race in New York 19 otherwise is Pat, uh, Ryan ran on the Dobbs issue. It was about abortion rights. Molinaro ran on inflation. And uh, it was pretty clear which side won. And it reflects another reality, which we're seeing around the country, which is voter registrations that are up sharply in a lot of places are particularly up sharply among uh, women. There are a couple of other races in New York, and you can talk about the uh, two uh, senior incumbents being thrown together. It was really a battle of the east side of Manhattan against the west side of Manhattan. There was also a district where there were a ton of candidates, New York's 10th district, including one incumbent who decided to run there, although it was unfavorable, a freshman, very progressive named Mondaire Jones. Bill de Blasio, the former mayor, got into this race and then dropped out. And he dropped out because he was going to get a trace element of votes, which he still got. And then Dan Goldman, who became prominent because of the first impeachment hearings and who was controversial in his own right, but who won that primary. And that means he will win that seat. And that includes liberal parts of Brooklyn and uh, elsewhere. His closest opponent was actually a woman controversial in her own right, who, among other things, supports the BDS movement in a district with a lot of Jews that uh, probably kept her from beating out uh, Dan Goldman. But he's likely to come to Congress, and we have an experienced prosecutor who will undoubtedly play a role there. Let me actually offer to contrast Ryan and Molinaro. I wanted to pull up, uh, well, what Ryan's, Pat Ryan's tweet, uh, I think, kind of summarized what I think he took through his campaign speeches. Choice was on the ballot. Freedom was on the ballot. Tonight, choice and freedom won. And and this was uh, early, actually early Wednesday, the day after, since the race was so close. Going on, he said, we voted like our democracy was on the line because it is. I think it was a very accurate statement uh, around how he campaigned, around how Democrats around the country supported him. I want to contrast that because it drives home your point, Norm, of what we are going to expect more of. I mean, certainly we've got the Mastriano. I can bring up a handful of ads that actually I recall black and white kind of uh, looking at uh, some of these Doug Mastriano's ad that says oppose all abortion. But what I think was interesting about the Molinaro campaign was that this is uh, someone who's pretty smart and avoided the topic of abortion, but really decided to concentrate on, I think, what would have probably been called pretty meat and potatoes, bread and butter issues for all Americans and, and especially Republicans, crime, inflation. I think Molinar went even so far as to kind of make a big deal, appropriately so, out of the baby formula shortages, right? These are 
Norman, any given cycle, that would be the messages. Those, those actually would be the messages that resonate. So I think it's critical to kind of underscore, hopefully Democrats outside of New York take a lesson from that. So we can shift to Florida, where I also think we had a number of, of important races. But I want to I wanna put a pin maybe and circle back either today or in our bonus content around your perspective of what this means marching forward, because you and I are probably also working with some of these candidates, particularly on the state level at the gubernatorial races, who are trying to do exactly this. They are trying to kind of divide along these lines of don't talk about abortion, talk about what matters to Americans. And it turns out it's reproductive rights and voting and democracy and voting rights that actually do matter to Americans. So we had this uh, contest of titans, which was because of the way redistricting worked in New York, incumbents thrown against one another. And uh, Jerry Nadler, who's been around longer than Carolyn Maloney, prevailed. And what was originally supposed to be a pretty close race turned out not to be. And of course, a good part of uh, Jerry Nadler's appeal, besides the fact that he is extraordinarily well known, is that he said he would be the only uh, Jew representing the New York City area. That matters in New York City. And I think it made a difference. So he'll come back. He's been the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Carolyn Maloney is uh, a chair of the uh, Oversight Committee at this point. Um, uh, he'll come back and. Uh, It'll be an interesting question. Jerry Nadler has been around for a long time. Part of the campaign that Carolyn Maloney ran suggested that he was growing senile. That did not work, uh, that uh, campaign, obviously. He will want to continue as chair of the Judiciary Committee if they're in the majority. If they move to the minority, there may be a challenge to him just because of a belief that they need somebody younger and more aggressive. You're offering a bit of a, I guess I'm still in this concern that we had enough MAGA victory to make me nervous. It should make it again, especially for the House. I'd mention one other thing that was actually uh, had me breathing a small sigh of relief. Last week, we talked about the fact that I'd been up in Chautauqua and Chautauqua County, New York, which is Western New York, a Republican area. And the House race there pitted the chair of the Republican Party in the state, Nick Langworthy, against a well-known figure who had run for the Senate before in New York State named Carl Palladino. Carl Palladino, most famous recently for praising Adolf Hitler as this great communicator, but before that had made all kinds of racist comments and engaged in racist behavior, had sent pornographic stuff around to people who didn't expect it or want it. And yet, when I was traveling around that county, you would see a lot of yard signs, this is Carl country. Uh, He took an early lead, but uh, Langworthy ended up beating him. And that's good simply because there won't be a guy who admires Hitler coming to Congress. Another guy who admires Hitler. (laughs) I was going to say, another guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sorry, you you need a qualifier statement there. But I agree. It's, I I guess, uh, at this point... There is not just an element of damage control, but it sends a signal. I think that we're starting. It'll be interesting to start to see usually now and kind of last night's primaries, or at least these, depending on when listeners are listening, just these recent slate of primaries dictate a little bit of how donors decide to make some of these key decisions, which gets us to our next topic, how this is impacting donors, how this is specifically kind of the infusion of dark money. And and maybe I can offer a little bit about Leonard Leo, since uh, this is something 
I have to confess that uh, I was not uh, a Leonard Leo. I, I, I was not somebody that was versed in who Leonard Leo was and what Leonard Leo was. So I'm going to go ahead and maybe make the assumption some of our listeners don't know. So this is a new organization, Marble Freedom Trust. Leonard Leo kind of is the, who's the co-chair of the Federalist Society, which is the only thing I knew about him, but has also been behind the takeover, the right-wing takeover, the Supreme Court that has been staged, but also very prominent in his challenges to abortion rights, et cetera got an infusion of the new PACS money from Barside, who's a 90-year-old electronics company executive, and uh, Leo, who has been a, a kind of a longtime activist in all the ways that I think activism has gone wrong, said that uh, in 2020, I believe, said that he was going to take a step back from all of his like challenges to abortions, et cetera, reproductive rights, and focus on, I quote, remaking politics at every level. And then only in the recent breakout story by Vogel and Goldmacher at the New York Times did we start to get a sense of what that organization looked like. So maybe you want to go into this, but uh, I went down the line of like how so much of this goes back. I had often heard President Barack Obama talk about Citizens United when that decision came down over a decade ago and how much consequence that would have. It's worth revisiting that and also just discussing how I think from scholarly standpoint, this is a new interpretation in terms of Citizens United, how much of a control they have over American taxpayers, um, supporting kind of the spending of like the wealthiest Americans in the form of this 90-year-old electronics executive, and just how much is wrong with a group of this magnitude and where this could Truly, 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 Norm, I thought that the end of democracy was within sight for so many reasons now. What does this mean with such an infusion of money and such an orchestrated effort that for unclear reasons, it's taken us several years to really uncover the details behind? What else is there is my question. Go on and give us kind of your thoughts and reactions. And do, do you have, have you ever interacted with Leonard? I feel like if anybody in this town of D.C. might have met him, it's you. I've met him. Um, I've done a couple of things with the Federalist Society back when it was an organization that would run seminars where they would try to bring in people from across the spectrum and treat them reasonably well. So the last time I did a program for the Federalist Society was to support term limits for Supreme Court justices. Uh, But here's the reality. The Federalist Society started out of law schools as a place where you could have conservatives getting a role in debates, you know, pursuing conservative ideas, it morphed into something very different. They still have some of those trappings, but it's basically become a recruitment ground for right-wing and reactionary people to come through to get clerkships for right-wing and reactionary judges. And then to be oftentimes go to a kind of boot camp to make sure that they're not going to change, that they won't be David Souters or Harry Blackman, people who come in as conservatives and then change. They're getting people who will never change. Leonard Leo was the architect of all of this, but has done a lot more. And where Leonard Leo first became a semi household word or term, was because 
Donald Trump running in 2016 basically agreed when Leo and a, a couple of others on the right approached him that he would only pick judges that had been pre-approved by Leo and the Federalist Society. And that includes, of course, the Supreme Court, but also federal courts. What we also know is that Leo has been very active with something long known as the Judicial Crisis Network, run by a protege of his named Kerry Severino. And if you saw the confirmation hearings or any part of it on television for Brett Kavanaugh, for Amy Coney Barrett, you saw large numbers of television commercials. That was the Judicial Crisis Network, which has also gotten very much engaged with lots of money in state judicial elections and Leonard Leo's involvement to make sure that they could get right-wingers. These are not conservatives. They're basically partisan hacks on courts of states like North Carolina and Wisconsin. And the goal has been to fill the judiciary with people who will enable them to stay in power, whether they win elections or lose elections, but also to tilt elections by taking away the power of minorities, by uh, enabling voter suppression legislation and outrageous partisan and racial gerrymandering, and even to adopt things like, as we now expect very possibly the Supreme Court will do, this ridiculous unitary uh, state legislatures uh, theory, the independent state legislatures theory, which will come up in the next term. Now, that's been the case with tens of millions of dollars. What we now have, because of the lack of disclosure and the dark money availability that Citizens United and its progeny helped unleash, and because they managed through filibuster to block disclosure of not just donors, but who's on the board of some of these entities, they set this up as a trust, not just a nonprofit, so that you could avoid any disclosure. And it was a tax trick, in effect, used. This man took his company, gave it in toto to this trust, and then sold the company and all the proceeds, $1.6 billion, went to the trust and nobody had to pay any taxes on it. So we are subsidizing an underground campaign using dark money to infiltrate every judiciary in the country, state, local, and federal with people who are going to make sure that voters don't get to choose who their representatives are or who their president is. It's very frightening stuff. That is way too much money. By the way, just my only kind of Carrie Severino story has to do with her constitutional challenge. Well, the JCN's constitutional challenges to the ACA. And then also what I learned in kind of reading through some of the filed briefs against the Affordable Care Act back then was a couple of things. She was actually a student at Harvard Law when Elena Kagan was dean. I always found that to be interesting. And then number two, you know, it's funny, Norm, we keep putting so much and I remind people that, yes, Donald Trump certainly gave us an inflection point in a very dark way in the democracy of our country. But JCN started under George W. Bush. I mean, this was I remember being in the Senate on the help committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, both on the DNR side, minority and majority, both kind of dealing with 
a pretty robust set of fundraising right around, you know, kind of 2006, kind of 2005, six, seven, the tail end years of the Bush administration. Obviously, we had before that Bjork, Robert Bork. I mean, we had a number of candidates for the Supreme Court, but a number of judiciary nominees and a slate that certainly would have that raised my arm hairs on my arm back then, but would now. And so it is an example of what I have kind of been describing just colloquially to friends of like an evolving landscape where these are, I would have called them well-funded organizations that had an unwavering commitment to taking over the judicial process to shape law, to bend kind of ideological will. And many have argued on, on the right that the Democrats have done that. But this billion dollar plus infusion, and again, I think you, you, you agree, I assume, with kind of the Citizens United backdrop facilitating all of this, but it's not something that started with Trump. It's not something that's going to start and stop with Leonard Leo and the billionaires in selling companies. It's been in place for decades and something we will have to contend with for decades, no matter who is in power, House, Senate or White House. So, I, I mean, Citizens United is personal with me, of all things, because a key part of what it targeted was a piece of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, known as McCain-Feingold, that I helped to create. Yes, it was uh, known as the uh, Snow-Jeffords Amendment. And I won't give all the backstory, but uh, Olympia Snow had called me up when campaign finance was foundering on the fact that Republicans insisted that uh, labor unions be kept out of the campaign finance. Democrats wanted uh, to restrict the role of corporations, and she wanted to find a better way to deal with it that could make something happen. And I worked with her to create this part of the legislation that basically would have kept union and corporate money out of, or limited, uh, and out of advertising that was so-called issue ads, but that actually was targeted close to an election on a particular candidate in a particular district. And that was a a lot of what they cut out. Now, when they did Citizens United, I should add, part of the rationale uh, in the decision written by Anthony Kennedy was, well, we'll get disclosure and that will be at least a leavening element of this. And then, of course, all of the people who'd said, we want disclosure, we want disclosure, like uh, Mitch McConnell suddenly turned against disclosure. And it was filibustered, even though it got 59 votes in the Senate, the Disclose Act, to provide the disclosure that would have put at least some check on this dark money. We would know where it was coming from, by and large. Didn't get a single Republican vote, including that of Olympia Snow, which really shocked me. But Citizens United was followed by Speech Now and a series of other decisions. And the court has basically, and Congress unable to overcome it, not been able to do anything about the subterfuge of putting this money through nonprofit organizations, 501c4s, much less these uh, trusts. Now, there's another part of this that I, I think is really important, which is that on the right, you have an army of billionaires, Peter Thiel being another one who is pretty much single-handedly financing J.D. Vance's campaign in Ohio and others who are willing to really put up a lot of money to accomplish their ideological ends. And the left just doesn't have that. You know, the, what's mentioned all the time by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others on the right 
is George Soros, George Soros, George Soros. Now, that's very thinly veiled anti-Semitism, but it's also inaccurate. Soros is not putting up huge sums of money anymore into the political world. He only did it for a brief period and did not do it in a way that was targeted insidiously, like we're seeing with Leonard Leo. And there are billionaires on the left who contribute, but it's a drop in the ocean compared to what you see from those on the right. I mean, just imagine it. You've got a 90-year-old guy who obviously either doesn't have heirs or doesn't want to give them money, who turns his entire company over $1.6 billion to the forces of evil. And we haven't seen that. If we let this sort of thing happen, where the Peter Thiels of the world are able to subvert our democracy and take power and cling to it in what is not a full-born autocracy, not a Russia, but as we've said many times and will again, a Hungary-like, Orban-like system, which looks on the surface like it's still a democracy, a Republican form of democracy, small r, small d, but in effect is a, an autocracy. The elections are rigged uh, before they begin. The uh, courts are not independent, even though they appear to be. The press appears to be free, but really isn't. That's what they want. And they may get it just by having a few people put in several billion. I don't think it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, but I know a number have also called out Michael Bloomberg, for example, for the same, same exact kind of commentary. And by the way, if you actually look at Bloomberg's giving, it's primarily through much of his foundation as well as nonprofit, which has, by the way, been dedicated to, you know, abolishing guns, getting rid of guns, et cetera, but hasn't been necessarily funding political campaigns to this depth. But I think it's a I think it's a smart point. What I'd like to do on our uh, our close for our public segment is to just offer another way to make a, an appeal. If you've listened and you like this, please like us on social media. Please let your friends know about this. And if possible, try to actually become a member of the DSR network. We think it'll be a meaningful conversation that we have and also hope to continue what we have been establishing as a new norm for Words Matter with Norm and with myself. I want to thank a couple of people. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network and have to give a shout out to our content producer, our show producer, Grant Haver, executive producer, Chris Cotnor. And the next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on September 2nd. See you then.